In this text, things get a little weird. The episode you're about to hear follows the miracle of the loaves and the fishes in which Jesus fed thousands of people. And this entire chapter of John's Gospel is devoted to sustenance, both literal and proverbial. Lots of talk about bread and water and wine and spirit. But sometimes it's difficult to tell when Jesus is literally talking about food and when he's using it as a metaphor for something else. Now the disciples that he's collected up until this point, all of these people who have been following him from town to town are especially confused. They seem to take what Jesus is telling them at face value, which is generally a bad idea. Up until now, they followed him without question. But now, hearing this teaching, most of them realize that there are limits to what they're willing to do for Jesus and how far they're willing to go. So reading from the Gospel of John. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you, there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they always be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we follow and in whose name we pray. Amen. I stared at the piece of paper before me in disbelief. The large red D scrawled across it like a scarlet letter. I wasn't accustomed to these kinds of grades, especially since I'd become a pretty decent writer at that point. My ninth grade English teacher had seen to that. After he threw the entire class's first writing assignment, 
out the classroom window in disgust. That was pretty shocking too, but he taught me a lot about uh, composition and I worked hard at it and I've been getting high marks in all of my writing assignments since then. But now, in US history, an advanced placement class during my junior year, I was faced with this wretched, miserable grade. The teacher, let's call her Mrs. Smith because I can't remember her name, clearly had no appreciation for my distinct writing style. She didn't like my essay about the American Revolution, taking particular issue with the martial arts tournaments and avant-garde dream sequences. I knew right then and there that I was in the wrong class. She just didn't understand my work, and this was never going to work out. And to make matters worse, as she handed out these papers, she gave us the single worst piece of advice that I have ever heard. You should give 110% to everything you do, she said. And I thought that was ridiculous. I didn't think you should put that kind of effort into things that you don't really care about. And I still don't. You know, my philosophy has always been to do what you need to do to get by and really pour yourself 110% into the things that really matter. Now, as a 16-year-old, U.S. history didn't matter much to me at all. I did care about getting good grades, though, so after a couple weeks in this class, I could see that this teacher and I just weren't going to get along. So I put in a transfer, and I dropped down a couple of levels to... Uh, Mr. O's history class. Now, Mr. O, that was his real name, uh, he was my kind of guy. He was uh, jovial, he was balding, and uh, he'd often make fun of his own follically challenged head. You know what they say, he'd tell us, hair today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> the jokes were terrible, but he was affable and kind of charming, and you, you just couldn't help but like the guy. Mr. O often repeated his jokes, too, like a waiter who uses the same repertoire with all of his customers. Let me tell you about history, he'd often say. I was born at a very young age. But Mr. O had a way of engaging us and making the material interesting, as you can imagine. I got an A in his class, too, and I'd say I probably only put in about 70% effort, whatever that means. That left me time for the things I really cared about when I was 16, like video games and girls. I didn't actually know any girls at the time, uh, but I spent a lot of time wishing that I did. That's a, that's a full-time job at that age. But as we get older, we find other things, hopefully, that we're passionate about, and we give those things everything we've got, 110%. My wife bought me a, a very thoughtful gift recently, an autobiography by the filmmaker uh, David Lynch called Room to Dream. Lynch has always been a kind of mysterious figure in Hollywood, uncompromising auteur that people tend to either love or hate. His films are difficult uh, to watch, often inscrutable, but it's clear that each and every one of them is a labor of love that he has poured himself into. And the book has been an interesting read because it really highlights this guy's singular devotion to his craft at the expense of everything else in his life. 
This is especially evident in the production of his very first feature-length film, Eraserhead. Uh, he had a little bit of funding from the American Film Institute, but at the time, he was otherwise broke. He had a wife and an infant daughter at the time, and he was unemployed. So he needed a lot more than an artistic vision to make this film. He needed a whole lot of determination and grit and elbow grease. He built all of the sets for the movie himself from scratch, using whatever you know, cheap or free materials he could get his hands on. He did all of the makeup for the cast himself. He personally worked with a sound engineer to develop the haunting industrial soundtrack. And when the money ran out, he'd halt the production for a year or two until he could scrape more together. A lot of people doubted that this film would ever be finished, and altogether it took him five years to make the movie. And after all of that, when it came out, most people hated it. Eraserhead told the surreal tale of a young man, Henry, tasked with caring for a hideously deformed creature who lives with him in his tiny studio apartment. It's filmed in black and white, uh, and like much of Lynch's later work, it's replete with grotesque images, nightmare fuel, and bizarre dream sequences involving a woman with monstrously swollen cheeks who lives in Henry's radiator. My US history teacher would have hated it. And like I said, most people did. They didn't know what to make of this thing. But eventually, it found an audience, and uh, you know, it helped him to launch a remarkable career in cinema. And he immediately began working on his next film, uh, which he called Ronnie Rocket, which uh, sadly never got made. He tells the story of meeting with a studio executive to pitch the idea. OK, hot shot, the executive said. What do you got? Well, it's about a man who's three feet tall, Lynch told him, with a red pompadour who runs on 60-cycle alternating current electricity. Get out of my office, the man replied. That was pretty much the end of that. This guy's art is often misunderstood because he pushes it as far as it can possibly go. He gives it 110%, often at the cost of other things, like narrative coherence. There's a cost to his family, of course, too. He's been married four times. And while his children have grown to admire the man as an artist, he was often absent during the most critical years of their childhood. Now, it's not for me to say if Lynch spent his time wisely or not, but the point is we all have choices to make about what we're really going to commit to, what we're really going to devote ourselves to, and what we're willing to sacrifice along the way. You can't give everything you have to everything you do. You've got to leave yourself room to dream, room for what matters most. Jesus often spoke about what really matters, saying that the things of this world can blind us to God's reality. But he was frequently misunderstood. And in this text, he tells his disciples and his followers something troubling. I'd call it borderline Lynchian in its absurdity. It's illogical and deeply disturbing. While teaching at this synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus tells them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, that might not seem so shocking to those of us who have gathered in this place for the Lord's Supper, who have heard these words before and we know them to be metaphorical. 
We have to realize that these people Jesus was talking to had never heard this kind of talk before. It was weird, grotesque. One of the uh, chief criticisms of Christianity in its infancy was the misguided belief uh, that Christians literally ate flesh and blood. And being exposed to this language for the first time, that's probably what a lot of these Christ followers thought Jesus was talking about. When one of them speaks up and says, this teaching is difficult, it's really an understatement. 